The Federal Reserve has been in an uncomfortable spotlight recently as the economy looks to the central bank to rein in inflation. What are the Fed's ag economists watching as interest rates climb? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The 2022 Ag Symposium was held at the Kansas City Fed May 23rd and 24th, and the theme of the bank's annual event is Help Wanted in Agriculture. Today, DTN Farm Business Editor Katie Dellinger joins us to talk more about what she heard from President of the Kansas City Fed, Esther George, and from various Fed economists who have their attention trained on the ag sector as inflation climbs, global factors disrupt supply chains, and the resources farmers need to run their businesses get harder to find. From the bank's perspective, ag labor is at the top of the list. Whether it's the need for hired hands on grain operations, cowboys, dairy workers, or picking and pruning teams, workers are often few and far between. We'll discuss how the Fed understands this growing issue, what they can and can't do about it, and where they expect relief to come from, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Farm Business Editor Katie Dellinger is just back from the Federal Reserve Ag Symposium that was hosted at the end of May and has an update for us. Katie, give us a little bit of an overview of what you learned. So every year, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City hosts an agricultural symposium. The 10th district of the Federal Reserve encompasses a lot of territory. It's one of the largest districts geographically, and so it spreads from parts of Montana, Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, into parts of Nebraska, a little bit of Missouri. And so it really spans a wide range of heavily ag producing areas. It's a very important part of the economy in that district. And so every year they host an agricultural symposium addressing economic issues that are big in that in the sector. And this year it was really focused on labor, which, you know, with everything going on in the ag economy right now, it's something that may not have seemed like the natural choice. I think a lot of people thinking about the war in Ukraine or some of the inflationary pressures in the broader economy would be something that they would address. Um, but they made a really good case for why now is the right time to talk about the labor shortage and the role that plays in some of the inflationary pressure that agriculture and the economy as a whole is facing. So I'm going to push you to 
build that out a little bit because yeah, I think the state of unemployment right now is part of this equation. Specific factors influencing the ag economy are part of this equation. How did the folks at the symposium kind of lay out why this is the important moment to talk about labor? In a lot of rural parts of America, Sarah, the unemployment rate is down around 2%, which means it's an incredibly tight labor market. There just are not enough people there to do all the jobs that people need filled. And so it's not just an agriculture problem, it's a rural problem. But farmers of all different kinds feel this in a very broad way, whether they need a tractor driver for their conventional corn and soybean operation, whether they need someone to ride a horse in their feedlot and watch the cattle, whether they are packing meat or produce or milking dairy cows. There are a lot of different ways that the shortage of jobs and or shortage of people to fill all of the available jobs in agriculture is actually weighing on the agriculture economy. It's keeping it from being as productive as it could potentially be. And so there are a lot of different avenues and veins in where this labor shortage is playing into the economy and the inflationary pressures. Let's maybe start. One of the things that they talked a lot about was issues with H-2A and immigration. Those things are related and different. One of the things we saw when COVID hit was that immigration took a big hit. And a lot of our immigrants are the folks that do the farm labor. One of the things that was mentioned, I found interesting, some of the meatpacking plants are actually sourcing a lot of Ukrainian refugees to help run and work in their meatpacking plants in different parts of the country. But overall, immigration levels are down, and that reduces the on-farm workforce even further. When you look at the H-2A program, it's plagued by problems that make it difficult for farmers to use. The thing that people say is, why do you have to hire a lawyer in order to hire a farm worker to get through the H-2A program? It often is very specific. And in order to effectively get that help when you need it, it takes a lot of time. With the H-2A program, in addition to all of the issues there, it's seasonal. So businesses like dairy farms can't really use it. Year-round produce operations find issues sourcing labor through it because there are requirements that it's seasonal. The actual wage you have to pay an H-2A worker is higher than what most farms would pay for their domestic labor. So there are those issues with it. But geographically, globally, there are also shifts and trends um, that are making sourcing H-2A labor even more difficult. In California, for example, in the fruit and vegetable industry, a lot of those farmers source from the same families that they've sourced from for generations from Mexico. But the Mexican labor pool is drying up. A lot of the third and fourth generation children whose family come into the U.S. to do this farm labor have moved on to do other jobs. They're now U.S. citizens in some cases, and they're going and getting degrees and changing fields. So the pool of H-2A labor, the Mexican labor is drying up or at least shrinking. Not, not, it's not gone, but it's shrinking. And so Mexico is actually importing farm workers from further south in Central America. They're bringing in Guatemalans and Hondurans into Mexico to do Mexico's farm labor. So that's pushing a lot of U.S. farmers to reach into South Africa and to some other countries to find farm labor for H-2A. So sourcing labor through H-2A is becoming more difficult in addition to all those problems with the program. So there's another layer on top of that, which is among U.S. farms, the average age of a U.S. farmer is getting older and older. And so over the next 10 years, there's a lot of farm 
transition that's expected to happen as these operations go to the next generation. And the question is, who are those people going to be? Are there going to be enough replacements in that pipeline to be able to do the work? And the question and the answer there is generally, no, it's not. And so the answer to these policy problems is, okay, Who's going to fix it? Is this going to be a problem that the government can address? And I think in general, the labor issue is something most people are saying the government's not going to be the one to be able to address it and fix it. It's going to have to be done by companies at the agribusiness level and by the actual farmers in some ways. And so at the farm level, the answer seems to be increased mechanization, higher precision agriculture But there are limits there. Tractors can only become so big before they can't drive on roads anymore. And there's only so much you can do with the drone or with automation to make these things happen. So part of the labor shortage is an advancement in technology that's necessary in order to keep doing what we've been doing, in order to be as productive as we have been before. And so that pressure to continue to produce with less and less, it's a chronic problem in business. And it's one that, you know, is really expected to be a driver of farmers' expense side of the balance sheet going forward as they're looking for this more highly skilled labor that can manage the data and the technology that these increased machines and technology produce. So there's a changing skill set in addition to all of these shortages that's really bubbling up to the surface. And how farmers prepare themselves for that is, is going to be quite a challenge over the next decade. I want to talk a little bit more about that technology question, but I want to double back and talk a little bit about the pandemic. COVID-19 has been dominating the news for the last two years, obviously plays a part in this labor conversation as well. You know, as we are in this moment where most shutdowns are over, most mandates have passed, does the Fed still see COVID playing a big role in the what we see happening in ag labor? Do they think it will continue to play a role in how labor kind of moves forward from here? Yeah, there's a lot of pandemic-induced stress that's still residual in the system. And a lot of it, in some ways, still comes down to some of the structural changes that happened in the trucking industry. Everything we get and have in our home as a consumer at some point relies on a truck. And in, in the very early days of the pandemic, the commercial truck driving fleet lost drivers because the demand for delivery went up. So a lot of people who had been doing long haul trucking jobs where they maybe were home once every two weeks, decided to go drive for Amazon or UPS or FedEx because those are daily routes where they could come home and see their kids every night and do that kind of work. So there was a shift of labor force from the commercial trucking fleet to the last mile delivery. And so what we found then was getting goods from the coasts where everything was backed up was compounded by a shortage of truck drivers to drive it into the United States. So the cost of transportation has gone up significantly, which if everything is transported by a truck at some point, that inflation gets built into every single price. Then you look at what's happened with fuel that it takes to drive the trucks, and that really builds and compounds. And a lot of that is an outcome of the pandemic and some of the changes that happened there. And one of the other big changes that they saw in the trucking and the supply chain side is the move away from efficiency. Most of our systems for delivering and transportation were set up in a just-in-time delivery. 
in economic terms, having inventory weighs down a company's balance sheet. It can be very difficult for them to move. That in the news recently, just looking at companies like Target and Walmart, they overbought things like patio furniture or the type of athleisure clothing that people wanted during the pandemic. Now that they're wanting to go out and drive places and resume a normal lifestyle, these companies have inventory and they can't get rid of it and it's weighing down their balance sheet. What we're seeing with companies though is in this post-pandemic era, they're looking at it and saying, our just-in-time model of delivery failed. We could not get the people we needed to get it from point A to point B before it spoiled. In some cases, in the case of like refrigerator trucks, there were all those problems and warehouses. So some companies are going on more of a resilient model, which means that they're able to adapt. So there might become more of an inventory kept in the United States that makes it a little bit less efficient. But when there are supply chain disruptions, it gives them a little bit more flexibility. There are pros and cons to that. And having a more resilient but less efficient system can be expensive. And so that's a little bit inflationary as it causes companies and different businesses to hold goods on their balance sheets as a just-in-case. And so that's one of the outcomes of the pandemic on a more economic level, that when you look at it and take that down to the farm, well, what does that mean for the farmer? If you grow... If you raise poultry and you get it processed and packed, that then sits in a refrigerated or freezer warehouse for however long it takes for it to get to the company. And that then raises the price because anytime you store something, there's an expense with that. And so those expenses get handed down to the farmer. The farmer ultimately is a price taker. And so they can't really choose what price they sell everything for in, in most systems. And so all of those costs work their way and eat away at the farmer's profit margins. I want to talk a little more about kind of that technology that you mentioned, because I think when farmers, when we talk about some of the technology that's coming out as maybe I'll call it the first generation of the reduced labor technology, the driverless tractors or the kind of single function, like smaller robots that are being used as weeding or scouting drones, that sort of thing. When I talk, when I've talked to farmers about those kind of technologies in the past, the idea that they need a more skilled labor force at times escapes them, I think, because they're like, how skilled do you need to be to like press a button? So explain a little bit more, if you can, about where those, that upskilling, where those additional tech skills will come from and why they're important as more and more of this kind of autonomous or alternative equipment comes onto the scene? It's a really big and interesting question. And it's one that didn't get a full answer in any way at the symposium, but it was definitely a point of discussion and something that there's a lot of nuance to that a lot of people might not think just looking at the surface. So for instance, let's say I'm a 45-year-old farmer, my dad's still farming, and I'm waiting for my chance to take over that operation. But I don't know all of our farmhands are older than me, and I don't know how long they'll be on the farm. So the question is, okay, what technology do I need to be able to be independent and to be flexible if I'm not able to source labor? So we're starting to see where automated autonomous tractors, no no hands involved, potentially are going to be coming to the market in the foreseeable future. And so the question is, okay, how do you manage that? We've got a lot of discussion right now and a lot of lawsuits about right to repair. 
So you think about farmers historically, especially with the shortages in the equipment market, they've been fixing up their own machines a lot in recent years, and they've been running into issues because of the computer-driven nature of that, because the software that a lot of these companies put into those tractors, they consider proprietary. And so you have to go to a dealership that has the right manuals and computer diagnostics and everything to fix. And so that right to repair issue is a big one as to how much a farmer can do on their own. So your question here becomes, okay, if our technology has more computer elements in it, are you fixing a tractor or are you fixing a computer? That's a different skill set. And some of the people who are like, okay, I can work on a motor might say, I'm not going to change the memory in my computer or add some RAM or do those types of modifications. It's maybe a little bit of a different beast to tackle. So that's a skill set change that a lot of farmers need to think about. And that's a hardware. You think about software. And software is a completely different tool, too. So a lot of the yield monitors, the mapping, the precision ag technology that's out there that generates the data that everyone says is what can drive the efficiency in operations. So you can limit your fertilizer to where you need it. You can put it on precise rates and fields. You only know that by analyzing data at a very microscopic level. And that data is getting more and more refined every time, every day. And so having a skill set that can work with that data is very different than just saying, okay, we have this bug and we're going to spray this chemical. It's a different thought process of saying and translating, okay, I've got 20,000 data points on this 100 acre field. What do I do? How do I make a decision based off of that? data. And so that's another skill set that you really have to think about when you're hiring employees. And a lot of farmers that I've talked to, Sarah, say things to me like, yeah, that's great, but what am I going to do with it with a lot of the technology that's out there? Because they just don't have the time or what I what economists would call human capital to address that problem properly. And so that's something that the next generation of workers in agriculture are really going to have to be good at is this sort of issue of connectivity and data management and really make using that data for an effective cause for their business. I want to turn back to the Fed because I think we seem to be at a moment where things are maybe taking a little bit of a turn in the economy. Farmers had some good years for income, but over the last two years, 18 months at least, input costs have been on the rise. Margins are definitely getting squeezed. So I think there's been a lot of focus on the Fed as what is the Fed going to do? What's going to happen with interest rates? How are they going to try and avoid a recession perhaps? But I also think there's some limits to the Fed's power that I think people aren't talking about. You mentioned this a little bit earlier. The government can't fix the labor problem. I'm curious whether the Fed experts there talked at all about the limits of the Fed's ability to influence some of these things that you know are going to be critical in the short term and the long term for agriculture. One of the things I hear when I talk to Federal Reserve economists, whether it was Esther George in her keynote speech or Nathan Kaufman, the Kansas City Fed's chief ag economist, one of the things they always like to point out is the difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy. Monetary policy oversees our money supply. Fiscal policy oversees how we spend it and how we raise it. And so there are very different avenues as to what they do. And the Federal Reserve has two very distinct mandates. It's to manage inflation and manage employment. But the tools they have to do that are very blunt as to what they do. They don't have a lot of options that they can do. Lawmakers are the one on the fiscal side that can do a variety of different things. But the Federal Reserve is more or less constrained to raising or lowering interest rates or buying or selling 
assets on the market. And right now, what the Fed is doing is they've recently said they're going to raise the their federal funds rate 0.75 percentage points or 75 basis points is what people would call it. And what that means, that Fed funds rate is what the banks use to lend to each other overnight. So that's the Federal Reserve saying, okay, you've got these many outstanding liabilities. You've got to be even at the end of the day. We'll loan you that money at this rate, at the Fed funds rate. So they raise their rate. And that means that every down the banking chain, banks raise their rates. And that influences every loan that has a variable interest rate on the market and the any future to be created fixed interest rate loans. So it really is something that has a ripple effect as you go through. But that is a very blunt tool when you say it. They can't control what companies do with that. They cannot control the reaction of some people out there. You still see people, or at least where I live in Tennessee, the housing market is still booming despite what's happening to the mortgage rates and mortgage rates hitting their highest level since 2009, I've seen reported. And the Federal Reserve has very limited power in that. And the other thing they're doing right now is they're letting some of the assets they bought to help recover from the pandemic. And even before that, they're letting their $9 trillion balance sheet, they're letting some of these mortgage-backed securities and things expire and roll off. That's also reducing the amount of money that's out in the market. And so they're tightening it from that perspective as well. And so these changes really, they can't be specific. They can't tailor and say, okay, we're going to do something to reduce fuel prices. We're going to reduce, do something to reduce the price of groceries. What they're doing is they're saying, okay, we're going to make it a lot more. We're going to take a little chunk out of profits from businesses. They're going to have to pay more in interest in order to do this. And that generally gets passed on to the customer. The customer then stops buying. It's a function that reduces the demand side, but after it ripples through all of the supply side. So it's really an idea that, okay, things are getting expensive and now we need demand to fall back. It's not a very precise way to do it, but it's all that they have to do. And so this really does influence farmers in a lot of ways. We see a lot of their input costs, Sarah, are just through the roof. We're looking at $1,500 in hydrus. Yes, that's come down a little bit. Is it going to change much by next year? Probably not based on some of the supply issues that are there. Could some of those fertilizer prices go up next fall based on some of these issues in Ukraine and Russia? Maybe. The cost farmers are going to have to pay for a variable rate operating loan are going to go up unless they can get something fixed in with their bank, which it depends on where you are, your relationship with your banker, that interest rate will go up for farmers. Um, Nathan Kaufman likes to say that historically, these rates on operating loans are 6 to 7%, which is back about where they would be with this federal funds rate adjustment. But that's not something farmers are used to in the past decade. We've had really cheap interest rates, and that's, that's brought down their cost of borrowing. So even farmers will have to eat higher levels of interest as part of doing business. And so those things just on that side alone will eat into and change that profitability balance for growers going into next year. Yes, corn prices are high. They're higher than they've been in, in quite a long time. But those higher prices are going to be really tight to balance with these higher input costs. And that the variable in here is energy. Because by this point in the growing season, farmers have paid for their seed. They've paid for their, their chemicals for the most part. They've paid for their fertilizer. What they're looking at is their energy costs for fall. They're looking at fueling those tractors and what they might need to dry the crop. And that could be expensive 
in the fall, something that could further erode this year's potential profits. And so it's just a tight situation for growers out there trying to balance everything that's going on in the constantly changing geopolitical environment. So much to keep track of. I'm sure the question came up. I hear this, I feel like almost daily at this point, though, uh, I think there is, there's certainly concern here. I'm curious whether someone, it, it was discussed with the Fed, with inflation rising as it is, with interest rates rising as they are, it looks, I think, to a lot of especially older farmers, a bit like the 1970s. Was there some discussion of what the risks are there and what the next couple of years or next several years could look like? How similar does this moment look like some problematic periods in the past? So one of the things that I've learned about the 1970s and stagflation is what it's called, where economic growth was stagnant, but inflation was running rampant. We're hearing, and I've seen a lot of relationships or referrals to that and asking the question, are we in another stagflationary era? For farmers, that stagflation really precipitated the farm lending crisis of the 1980s. When you think about farmers were buying farmland at 17, 18% interest, and then had the as a flood of that land came to the market because they couldn't afford those payments, the price of farmland crashed. I think what we're seeing in the ag economy right now is that farmland is maintaining its value much better than other assets. A lot of it is owned outright. The amount of leverage among farms on that land base is much, much less than the 1980s. So even though interest rates are going up, most of the economists and the bankers I talk to don't expect a major 1980s style crash in farmland values. We're still seeing farms sell at record or near record levels. I saw something on Twitter about a sale in Lynn County, Iowa, which is a high producing area, selling to an investor from New York for $17,000 an acre. And when you're seeing sales like that, it, it's that historically would be above what you could generally expect to be cash rented at a level that sort of pays for itself. And that investor told people at the auction he wasn't going to rent it for less than 500 an acre, which is a mind-blowing amount. So what we're seeing in the farmland market is that there are still buyers out there. We're maybe seeing more of them becoming investors versus farmers, but farmers are still bidding for land that's out there because in general, the supply of farmland that's on the market is tight. You're not having a flood of land coming to the market and that's keeping prices high. And until you start to see a lot more land coming on the market, that's it's not really going to fall or decline in the same way that you would expect or that you would have seen in the 1980s when people were forced to sell the land because they could not make that payment. Because so much of it's owned outright, a lot of it really just gets sold as those generational shifts happen and one farm heir wants to cash out or do different things. So for farming and for farm finances, that land base, that asset base is a really important financial indicator because that is what a lot of growers borrow against. That's their operating money. That is their capital in their business. And from a farm financial standpoint, even though there are a lot of inflationary pressures in the market right now, there's a really strong underpinning in the land value to, to keep farmers in a, a an ability to keep farming and keep going. This environment, even though it is very tight, probably won't produce a lot of bankruptcies right away. There will be some 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 exceptions to that. There will be 
people who do not have that land base, whose businesses will be put under a lot of pressure to balance rising cash rents, rising input costs with the current with current cash prices, which you know, for summer prices, $8 corn, $16 beans. You look at futures, we're looking at $7.30, for December corn. Those are historically really strong prices. But when you're paying two or three times for ammonia, which you did last year, and your cash rent might go up $100 an acre, that's hard to balance if you don't have that land base to really bring your costs down. I think the other part of that is it's important to remember that at the height of $7 corn in like 2013, people still went out of business. Some people will go out of business at any moment and it's not always a good indication of the situation. Right. And that's why a lot of economists that I've talked to over the past few years have really advised farmers to look at their working capital rates at their cash on hand. That is their dry powder. That is their buffer against a lot of this volatility. And so making monitoring that level, making sure you've got reserves in case things do become more expensive or you have to spend more on fuel in the fall is a really good business strategy and something farmers should work with their advisors this summer and then again this winter to really take a hard look at their business about what they can do to make sure that they are able to stay in the game and keep their business running for the long term. The last question I wanted to ask you is just, you are always working on a huge variety of stories. Anything that you're working on over the summer that you're particularly excited about that you'd like to flag? You know, we're starting to gear up for our fifth digital yield tour that will happen in August. We're going to be partnering with Grow Intelligence once again to bring that to farmers. I think we've had a really good track record over the past few years with Grow of getting strong yield estimates in August. The way our tour works is we the numbers we release are projections of what the USDA will put out as their final crop estimates in January. And we've actually, in the, in the case of soybeans, the models have been more accurate than USDA itself in predicting what USDA's January estimate will be. So we're really looking forward with all of the weather issues that have been much more varied across the Corn Belt um, from too much moisture, not enough moisture, a lot of hail and storm damage to see what those crop estimates are going to be, what that means for national production. We do have the June acreage report coming up here on the 30th of the month to really see what farmers were able to get planted this year. And I think that I think this year's digital yield tour is going to be very interesting for folks to pay attention to. Especially with uh, on the soybean side with historic s- tight supplies, it's going to be any tiny trickle of information is going to move the market, I have a feeling. Right. And wow. especially in the corn market as well, with where that could be for the next growing season, depending on what we were able to get planted, how much we were able to grow with the drought conditions in South America, tightening up that crop, what will Ukraine and Russia be able to really grow and export? What's their lack of being in that market mean for the supply and demand balance sheet on the global level? All of it will be really interesting for this growing season, but also for what it means for next year's planting. Way too early to talk about that, but it does have a lot of implications and connections. To read more about ag business and finance, what farmers are thinking about the Fed's recent actions, and to check out all of Katie Dellinger's reporting, visit dtnpf.com or subscribe to the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Katie Dellinger. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.